Could you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading this morning is from Acts, the sixth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte for Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles once again, this time to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 13, taking a little break this morning from our study in Ephesians so that we can see what Paul had to say about the requirements or the qualifications of deacons. And so this morning we're going to talk about deacons, ministers of mercy, ministers of mercy. While the seven men that we just read about in Acts 6 are not called deacons, they are forerunners of the office of deacon that we have today. And that account in Acts chapter 6 reflects God's tender heart for those who are in need. For example, you think about the whole Bible. Deuteronomy 10, 19 tells us that out of love, God seeks justice for the widow, the orphan, the alien, those who are often neglected. Israel sang about God's support of those same groups. For example, in Psalm 146, 9. And you might remember from our study of the minor prophets that over and again, they called Israel to dispense true justice and to do that in kindness and compassion. And so that the appointment of those seven men reflects God's heart, His his tenderness toward those who are in need. So why did Paul write this first letter to Timothy? Well, and as you do your Bible study, that's one of the things you want to do when you study a book of the Bible. Try to figure out, okay, why did the author write that book? Because then everything else is supposed to fit in that. And and so like with a, in our uh, teaching workshops, it's one of the things I keep hammering home to the guys is that you've got to figure out what is what's the book about because everything's going to fit into that. Well, First Timothy, kind of like the Gospel of John, is real easy because he just comes out and tells us. And that's really wonderful. So if you're in First Timothy chapter 3, let's look for just a moment at why Paul wrote this letter. He tells Timothy straight out, verse 13, First Timothy 3, 13 and 14, or... Sorry, 14 and 15. Verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, 
the pillar and support of the truth. So he tells Timothy, I'm writing this letter to you so that you, and then you can pass this on to them as well, so that everyone will know how they ought to conduct themselves in the church. In other words, what he means by that is he's laying out guidelines for church life. This was one of the jobs that the apostles were assigned from the Lord Jesus to to establish the churches, to appoint leaders, and to lay out these guidelines for those leaders. And so we find in 1 Timothy that Paul provides guidelines for selecting elders, for selecting deacons, and in chapter 5, for those for caring for widows, guidelines for that. So you can see how even in this, when he's talking about, you know, kind of church matters and, you know, policy and guidelines and stuff, he's still showing the heart of God that he has tender concern, care for those like widows, for example. Our Lord takes the care of his sheep seriously. Our need for mercy is so important to him that he gives ministers of mercy to his churches. It's so important, too, that these men and the wives who serve alongside them must meet certain qualifications. These men are called deacons. And Paul taught that deacons must possess proven character, both personally and in their home. They must possess proven character, something that can be seen and proved out, tested, and both personally, that is in their in their own heart, in their own life, and in their home. See, the deacon's service helps the church to be a place where hurting, suffering people can be cared for and be restored. That's the heart of God manifested in this wonderful office of deacon. As the good shepherd, Jesus takes the, the care of his sheep seriously. Through the apostles, he laid out qualifications so that those sheep could be cared for. Qualifications for men like elders. And he talks about those in the first part of chapter 3. There where he calls them overseers. But overseers, elders, pastors, it's the same thing. Just interchangeable names. But then after talking about guidelines for elders... He then gives the qualifications for deacons. So follow with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. After talking about the, the guidelines for elders, it says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what we find first in this passage is that deacons must have proven personal character. Proven personal character. We'll see that in verses 8 through 10 as we walk our way through that now. 
the character requirements for deacons are essentially the same as those for the elders, but there's one key difference. Deacons aren't required to be able to teach. Now, some of them do teach, and they are able to teach, but they're not required to as deacons, to where elders are required to be able to teach. And Paul here says, likewise, when he does that, he says, okay, just as it was, it, it mattered how you select elders, so also it matters how you select deacons. It, we, we have to give similar care in selecting qualified men. And as I said, deacons will work with hurting and vulnerable people. They'll be entrusted with church resources. And so... We have to take this seriously. The Greek word for deacon, diakonos, means servant. And that word is used in three basic ways in the New Testament. First, in the most general use, or for those who serve to meet particular needs, uh, in practical needs in, in different ways, like serving food or in serving in civil government. Also, all believers are called to be servants, and that that term diakonos is used for every one of us who is in Jesus Christ. And we are, in a sense, to be uh, deacons, if you will, all of us, uh, in the sense of serving one another. But then there's a little more specific use, a second use of diakonos in the New Testament. It applies to those who have the gift of serving or helping. And you think here, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, where it lists out these spiritual gifts. Some people are particularly gifted by the Holy Spirit to be used in serving the flock and serving, helping. The third use of diakonos is even more specific. It refers to men who are who hold the office of deacon. So let's look at their qualifications, and let's look again at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or, wine, or fond of sordid gain. So first, he says, they need to be men of dignity. They, were, they must be worthy of respect. They must be honorable. They must be men of integrity, men who have self-control. They're like, they're, they are to be like those in Acts 6.3 where uh, we read there they were to be men of good reputation. So what does such dignity look like? Well, what Paul does first is he prohibits three traits that can destroy a man's respectability. And so first, these first three are negative, what they must not be. First, he must not be double-tongued. That, that's talking about a hypocrite. Somebody who says one thing to one person and then they say something else to another person. Okay, they're a hypocrite. They say two different things to different people. Uh, a deacon must not be that. He must have integrity in his speech. He must be sincere in his speech and truthful. Second, he must not be addicted to much wine. It means... He doesn't cling dearly to it or, or give himself to it. And that's what that term addicted means, is that, that, he's, that he's devoted to uh, alcohol, wine, as he's mentioned here. In other words, if he drinks alcohol, a deacon must know when to stop and does. Third, he's not to be fond of sordid gain. He's not greedy for money. He's someone that we can trust to distribute the church's resources to those in need. 
somebody that you can feel confident that you can say, hey, I know so-and-so has a need and and here here's some money in an envelope. Will you give this to them? And you know that, that it'll get to them. And there's somebody you can, people you can trust to do that. They're going to be taking care of the church property. Yes, we can trust them with that. Continuing verse 9. He says, but these are the things that must not be now. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So he's now stating things positively. Okay. When he says here, you know, this is kind of like, okay, what does he mean by uh, holding to the mystery of the faith? You know, that word mystery throws us and we think mysterious and all. And it doesn't mean that at all. Something that, you know, has now been revealed through the word. It's something that we couldn't learn from just by studying nature and biology and all that. You know, we can't learn it that way. We have to learn it from the word and God revealed it to us. The mystery of the faith is is the faith that we all hold to. Um, his life is consistent with the truth of Scripture, is what he's saying. He holds to that, the faith that's once delivered to all the saints. And his life is, is consistent with it, so much so that he can then say, and this man's conscience doesn't condemn him. When, when, he thinks, when this man thinks about his own moral integrity... His conscience doesn't even condemn him. Now, we all know, and this is one of the things, you know, and, and whenever uh, any of us are being considered to be an elder, deacon, whatever, servant, you know, every one of us would be the first to say, oh, I can think of plenty of reasons why, you know, you, you don't want me, you know. And because we know that we are weak and fallible and... Um, we wrestle with our own sins, and um, but yet, what he's saying here is that these people, they, these men, they they deal with their sin. They're men who regularly repent when they sin. These are men who know that they are weak and they depend on the Holy Spirit. They don't, they don't have areas in their life where um, they don't have integrity. You can have integrity and still be weak and, and broken in ways, right? And they're honest when where they're broken. They have integrity. That's what these men are like. Now, at this point, Paul kind of pauses. So look at verse 10. It pauses with the, the requirements. Verse 10. And let these also first be tested... Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So he's saying, approve them after testing them. These men have to be tested. And this is where a lot of churches in, in modern times where, where they go astray and they make mistakes and they end up with, with big problems as a result. Because they don't test the men that they put in as pastors, uh, elders, or, or even as deacons and they they just find you know find upstanding men in the community that are belong to their church and they say okay he's he's an upstanding businessman so we'll make him a deacon or a, or an elder. Um, I've seen it happen and many of you probably have seen that happen before. They don't test them by these guidelines, but the elders are responsible to examine the lives and the character of these men. <clears throat> 
we have to watch their lives, watch their interactions with the flock, and to know. That's what we, we this word means to approve after testing. Okay, so we have to test them, we have to examine. And so because of this instruction, the GBC elders, we watch for men who are already serving the flock. We look for men who basically are already doing the job of deacon. And and then we examine them to see if they meet these qualifications. And not everybody is called to that ministry. There are men who meet these qualifications and they are serving. And you'd, you'd swear that they must be one of the deacons because they serve so much. But they don't feel called to this, you know. But he says if they are approved, then let them serve as deacons. And so he adds another uh, qualification, if you will. But really, this word uh, for beyond reproach, what he's talking about here is that uh, this is a general, all-encompassing term. It's it's summarizing all these requirements together. And he even uses that for elders as well. You know, it just kind of summarizes, pull it all together and if you put it together, then we would say they're a beyond reproach. There's there's nothing really that any kind of charges against them that stick. Um, second, not only must they have proven character personally, but they must have proven character in the home. They must have proven character in the home, verses 11 and 12. So look at verse 11. <clears throat> He says first, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So at this point, you're like, okay, wait a minute, John. You said this is deacons, and now he says women, okay? And I haven't seen any women deacons around here yet, so, you know, what, what's going on and what's Paul doing here? And it sounds like this is a new group of people. And so we have to ask, and you're wondering where I'm going to go with this, right? So are these women deacons, or are they the wives of deacons? There are godly churches who understand this to refer to women deacons. However, uh, I think it seems unlikely that that's what Paul has in mind here. And I'll show you some reasons why. Why, why I and, and we, uh, leadership, hold that. And as a church, that's what we hold. <clears throat> what fits best with the flow of thought here is that these are deacons' wives. You see, they, they have to have similar character as their husbands, because they're going to serve alongside their husbands oftentimes in, in the deacon ministry. Uh, not that they're, you know, overseeing things. It's not that. It's that they, a lot of times it's like, okay, we need to go care for this family or this widow and, you know, and the wife comes along with and, and serves. And <clears throat> because of the nature of their ministry, a lot of times their wives will serve alongside them. So their wives need similar character. Second, deacons like the men in Acts 6.3 are put in charge of these ministries. And if we go back into chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, verse 12, we find that uh, women are not allowed to teach men or to exert authority over men. So they wouldn't be able to have uh, this oversight of put in, being put in charge over other men especially. Third, Paul required the elder and the deacon both to be a one-woman man. Literally, it's what it says. It'll say husband of one wife, but literally it says a one-woman man. Okay. So you would expect that if he's now talking about a third group, 
women deacons or deaconesses, as some call them, that he would say that she has to be a one-man woman, but he doesn't say that. And what's interesting is if you go into chapter 5, when he talks about widows that we can put on the list, if you will, to, to support financially, for the church to support, that widow has to have been a one-man woman. So it's interesting that he would require that of a widow, but not require that of a woman deacon, if that's what he had in mind. And so uh, that's another reason why I don't think he's talking about women deacons. Also, the word for women here also means wives, the word gunakos. Um, and, and it's used in the very next verse for, no one doubts this, their wives. Okay, So they're, they're just two verses apart like that. Uh, it seems that the flow of thought is still, he's talking about their wives. Now, some people will say a couple of, um, you know, what about? Um, first, they say, what about Phoebe? Okay, so in, in uh, Romans 16.1, she is called a, guess what? Diakonos. Okay, well, they say that means that she was uh, an actual official deacon. It says she is a, a diakonos of the church. But as I talked about earlier, diakonos can also be used for those who have the gift of serving, helping. It can be used generally of people, even for all believers. Uh, and when Paul's talking about, he names certain people, and then he calls them, in English it'll say servant, typically. And he's using that word diakonos. I think he's speaking generally in the sense that, you know, they maybe they have the gift of serving, but maybe it's just as a believer, they kind of are... Uh, they do a lot of serving. Paul called himself a diakonos in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. But his office was apostle. So you see, it he seems he's using this in a more general way. He talks about Timothy and some of the other men who were more, more than likely pastors. And he calls them diakonos. You see, so when he's talking about people specifically, it seems that he's talking more in a general sense. So uh, Phoebe, just because it says that she's a diaconos of the church, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that she was a woman deacon. Okay, another what about? Why are there no qualifications listed for elders' wives? Well, uh, elder is a very different gift or, or office. Okay. It is a teaching and a governing office Okay, um, at, at the heart of it. So 1 Timothy 2.12, again, it forbids women, so it would forbid the elders' wives from teaching the flock. Now, they can teach women, teach children, but teaching, like up here, to all of you, um, they are not going to participate with us. They're not going to, you know, come. Unlike some churches, we're not going to say, you know, pastors John and Connie do, you know, and she comes up here and preaches a little bit. That's not going to happen, okay? And so in that way, she's not ever going to serve alongside me in that capacity, right? Um, and the same with the governing. So there are things that uh, we elders will take up as shepherding, matters that we talk amongst ourselves and we don't tell our wives. And sometimes that's not a, appropriate for us to tell them. And 
there are things that we have to keep within the eldership to discuss. And so, they're, they're, no, they have a, a hugely important ministry to us and sometimes with us in some of the work that we do, like when we, we counsel couples together and things like that. But it's not the same um, as the, the, they're not entering into elder work, if you will. But deacons' wives often serve with their husbands in ministries of mercy. Like I said, you know, if they're going to go visit a, a widow or something, um, or if there's a, a woman who has some particular health needs and they're going to go and help, but it's more appropriate for the wife to, to do some more of the hands-on help. And as I said, GBC's view is that deacons are to be men. So let's talk about their wives. He says here in verse 11, they must be dignified. So like their husbands, they need to be worthy of respect. He also says they must not be malicious gossips. They're going to be privy to needs and troubles of other people in the flock. So it's crucial that they control their tongues. They must be temperate. And while this does refer to being sober in the use of alcohol, uh, likely he has in mind here a broader concept of being sober-minded, uh, having balanced judgment, exercising self-control. And then he says they must be faithful in all things. They have to be trustworthy, reliable, dependable. Okay, now back to the deacons themselves. Verse 12. <clears throat> Let the deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. As I said, this phrase, husbands of one wife, means that, or literally is, they must be a one-woman man. In other words, their wife has 100% of their affection. And, and it's not talking so much about, you know, can you have two wives, three wives? Well, you can't be a deacon, you know. And that was a bit of an issue back then, like it's not today. But um, that's not really the point of what he's saying. The point is that he must be a one-woman man. But he also says that they must have an orderly home. He talks about their children and their household here. See, they're going to be uh, helping others in, in their own uh, managing of their household sometimes. And you know, how, how to do some things or helping them out and helping them through some problems with practical matters. And maybe even sometimes you know, how they use their, their finances and uh, those sort of things. So he has to be someone who knows how to do that. Third, <clears throat> serving well brings them honor and increasing boldness in their faith. So serving well brings two rewards, honor and increasing boldness in their faith. Verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So if these men serve well, there are two rewards that they can look forward to. First is they obtain for themselves a high standing. It's They have an honorable standing among the flock, and we should honor them and hold them in honor. Second, and this one's kind of interesting, and you may not have thought about this before, and, but I'll try to show you why it's important and what he means by it. When he says that great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus what he's talking about here is that as they serve well, their faith in Jesus will increase in boldness. 
their faith in Jesus will increase in boldness as they serve well. You see, so it's kind of a building thing. As they serve well, then their boldness increases, and they keep serving well, and the boldness increases some more. Okay, so why is that important? You know, their capacity to serve is increased as they serve well. Well, Alexander Strauch, in his book, The New Testament Deacon, which we use here um, for, for training and teaching about deacons, he explains, their work demands spiritual power and faith. Deacons need spiritual vitality and life. Do not, under, do not underestimate the potential influence the diaconate can have on the local church. Deacons can do mighty deeds for God and his people. They can profoundly influence the congregation. They can be living examples of Christ-like compassion and mercy. So, what must the rest of us do in response? Well, first, let me say this. Uh, go to the deacons and tell them, you know, what, what can you do? You know, say, you know, let them know, like... <clears throat> I'm handy with fixing things. So if there's somebody in need, you know, that needs something fixed, I can do that. Okay. Uh, let them know. I, I can mow a lawn for a widow or somebody who is laid up. Tell them, you know, I have available resources. You know, maybe I don't have a lot, but I have a little bit. But let me, if somebody has a need, let me know. Are you available to sit with someone who's homebound? Let them know this. Uh, you're able to help manage a budget. Um, stretch a dollar, you know, make your pennies count. Okay, deacons, I, I can help people. Let, let me know if they need that. Or you have a strong back that's ready to work. Let the deacons know. Okay, so they can call on you. Second... Pray for our deacons. And, and many of you, I know, do. You pray for the elders, you pray for the deacons, and we need that very much. Um, and, and so please pray for them. Hold them in honor. And, and I, from everything I see, you guys do. So I encourage you to keep doing that. Hold them in honor. And then learn to imitate their faithful, merciful service. As you see them meeting needs, caring for the flock, work at imitating them. Learn from their example. Because remember, we're all called to be diaconate or diaconos in some sense, right? So learn from them. They set the example for us. Well, what if you have a, a need for their ministry? Reach out to them. They're ready to serve. Rick and Larry, Preston, Jared, and Gary. And just, in just a few minutes, uh, Ty and Matt. Okay, well, if Matt, Ty, if you guys would come on up, and the elders, if you'd come up, and Avery will lead us in prayer as we install these two new deacons. The Lord is certainly good to His church. Uh, giving her ministers of mercy to care for us in our times of need. Little needs, big needs, our God cares and He provides for them. One of the things that I'm always uh, blessed by when I think about what I will 
talk about for the Lord's table. And we like it to flow, if at all possible, from the message and be tied into that. And when we think about First Timothy, there, uh, Paul, back in chapter 1, he really gives us something that, that grounds us for all that he's going to say about, for example, leaders. And he gives his example, but then he also gives us a grounding. And the first thing I want to point out He says in verse 15 of chapter 1, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And that the first thing in that beautiful statement that he gives us, we need to see that there's humility. We have to be humble. So leaders should not think like, okay, now I'm in charge, you know. Uh, It's not that at all. Because Paul, who was an apostle over... The churches saw himself as the chief of sinners. So one of the men that was in the top spot for the church saw himself down here at the bottom. And that's instructive for all of us, but especially those of us who have any kind of leadership role. But even more importantly than that, I'm always blown away by the Christ-centered focus of the Scriptures. And we see it especially clearly in the New Testament, which is all about Christ, right? The old is too, but we have to look a little harder sometimes there. The New Testament is just out there, you know, and it's not hidden at all. And we see that here. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what the church is all about. It's not about, you know, our our leadership structure and that it's important because he told us. But it's not about that. It's not about who's leading, who's following. It's about Jesus. And that colors our attitudes about everything. That colors the way we serve. And so as we come here to the table, picture in your mind as we should always the cross of Christ and him giving himself, dying for us, as he says here, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's talking there about the work he did on Calvary. They did for us to save sinners like you and me. And, And so all of this has a Christ centered focus. And that's why we have toward the end of our services where we always come back to, okay, to make sure that we're focused around Christ, that we're all rallying around the cross, that that is where our minds are, that's where our hearts are, attitudes, everything. It's all Christ-centered because He is the center of everything. And He must be the center of our church. So think about this as as we partake of the Lord's table together.